Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Those of you who have been following us know that this is the second part in our behavioral health focus edition. We have been joined uh, very gratefully by our friends at Brentwood Capital Advisors in Nashville. And our guest today is L.A. Gallion. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here and to talk about the behavioral market. That's right. Today, we'll be focused on substance abuse or SUDS as we often call it. So uh, let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about the outlook and the mixture and the demand versus supply equation and how that's been changing over the last few years. Sure. It's definitely been an evolution in the sector. COVID certainly accelerated the needs for care. And there's always been, as a you know, familiar theme you'll see throughout behavioral is really an, an access issue. There's supply demand, uh, demand challenges with that. And they're also payer kind of affordability and then just a simple number of providers. So as it relates to the substance and abuse sector, you've seen you know alcohol, drug misuse, and disorders really ramp significantly the last handful of years. If you look, it's ramped the past two decades, but that figure jumped almost 25% from 19 to 20 as far as deaths. So in 2020, there were 49,000 deaths associated with alcohol or drug misuse. Yeah, addiction to opioids, another pain relievers, heroin, synthetic things like fentanyl have become a chronic illness across the U.S. And drug-related overdose deaths topped 100,000 in 2021 for the first time in a calendar year. That was a 15% increase over 20. So the demand is there. What you saw from the supply side, Brian, if you remember in 15 and 16, there was a lot of abuse in the sector. A lot of the providers were doing things like the four-letter word lab, over-testing, and you had a lot of out-of-network. So in 2016, the commercial payers largely shut a lot of that down. And there were some providers who probably didn't have the best interest of their patients in mind. But I do think the providers that are still around, still treating patients have learned a lot from that. And the industry's grown up as a part of that. So sometimes you learn the most from your wounds. And so the sector has recovered from that. And you start looking at the market size for substance abuse, it's 25 billion and unfortunately growing you know, pretty considerably. And then the bigger thing is if you look at illicit drug use and alcohol abuse, it's about right at half a trillion it's 440 billion in kind of the economic impact to society. So it, it's a pretty big focus for communities, cities, states, and the federal government to make sure that this is this is something we aggressively treat. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously been a big focus on behavioral coverage broadly, kind of in the mid 2010s, including you know a big Washington focus on substance abuse. You know, I guess my question is, did it seemed like they were making a little bit of progress on it, and then of course we had an event that rocketed everybody right back into habit that they had been trying to overcome. But did what we see during the pandemic, was it a major regression or did get even worse from where it had been? You know, so as far as the patient base is concerned, I think one, there, there's good things like the stigma dropping. Uh, I think you'll see, right. you see folks on social media, celebrities talking about, you know, needing therapy, needing treatment, you know, needing privacy while they go through that. I think people were ashamed a decade ago to do that, but COVID exacerbated. We were talking about ice isolation, you know, as humans, we're not built to be on devices. And so a lot of groups like AA that are fundamental to the industry, the whole point is, you know, kind of being a group and working together as a community. And that was very difficult to do during COVID. And I think it, the demand, the stigma being dropped, and I think the industry really learning from past mistakes has hopefully created a, a healthier environment for providers that are growing and for patients to be able to access the system because this is expensive treatment, regardless if it's outpatient, 
residential. So if you have someone in your family doing that, you want to utilize your insurance to do that. 15 years ago, that was not the case. Right. A lot of high-end treatment centers are pretty much only available to the wealthy. But if you look at the demographics of the U.S., there's a huge, huge need. And so we're probably actually, as these stats we've gone through, understating the actual need out there. And so the, the demand is there. The supply and what we see in companies today are growing so quickly is letting you know that they're trying to meet the need, but there's still, still a lot of growth to be had in the sector. No, that's great. Did supply stall out at all during the pandemic? You know, obviously there was, you know, there was a lot of interest in ramping up supply heading into it, but did it experience kind of anything similar to what we saw? in elective procedure land where, you know, there were some cases where they just flat out couldn't do any face-to-face. I think a bunch of supply got pulled out of the system in 15 and 16. You know, there were companies, you know, public companies in the sector in in substance abuse that filed bankruptcy. A lot of PE-backed companies that were existing you know, before, prior to 16, filed bankruptcy based here in Nashville. We have a lot of those companies here and and, and they've been reincarnated uh, in a new way, which we can talk about. But really, you pulled a ton of the supply out of the sector. The sector became unattractive for not only private equity, but public investors. And so we walked into the pandemic really undersupplied from a provider standpoint, from a continuity standpoint. And then the other piece, I think, in behavioral that's changing, but we're not close to where we need to be, is it's been very, very siloed. So, so you have providers that are on the detox and res side. You have providers that are on the MAT side. You have providers that are in the PHP IOP side. That doesn't happen in the rest of healthcare. You rarely, rarely ever see a provider in one little small niche of a continuum of care. They're usually across it. I do think you're going to see that in behavioral. We can talk about some examples that we've seen for some very successful behavioral companies that started in XYZ sector. They could have been MAT only, and now they're expanding because the rest of health care is community dense, meaning if they're in a market, they're going to be very dense in that market. And I think behavioral will get there, but we're frankly in the first inning. Well, it's a good segue into our next focus segment on this, and that is just to talk about kind of evolution of the service mix. And just from our own deal work over the last 10 years, it seems like SUDS has been a space where you mentioned it was very siloed, but it seems like it's evolved quite a bit since then, and it, it's becoming more of a continuum chronic care management play. Is you seen a lot of that these days? Absolutely. And so we have a client in the space and they've made some acquisitions. And it's very interesting because one of the acquisitions they've typically made are very strong clinical providers, but siloed providers. So the client is based here. They bought a business out West. It was PHP IOP only. And over time, the business degraded. It just was losing referrals. They couldn't figure it out. And ultimately, what our client figured out when they bought them is most of the referral sources were, you know, again, this is a PHP IOP only addiction business. Most of the referral sources were detox and res facilities, bigger players who referred the downstream referral. Well, over time, our client discovered their referral sources had gotten their business. So they had added PHP, they had added IOP, they'd outed outpatient to their facilities, and they'd quit referring. And so this company, while they were doing good care for patients, they were taking it, they were trying to do the right thing. They were circling the drain because they weren't aware of what's moving around in their industry. And so our client simply bought their business, brought them on his platform, and then they added detox 
detox, they added res and they added outpatient. And you always want your referral base to be diverse and strong, but you also have to be cognizant of when your referral sources, they're healthcare companies too, and they may see opportunity in their markets to add a service line that you have. And that we have seen that happen over the last three years. So we've seen MAT companies, you know, Baymark is one in particular that's done very, very well. They started off in the MAT only kind of opioid methadone, suboxone clinics. And one of the things they, their board saw as they got density in markets is they were referring patients out, maybe more acute patients or less acute patients that needed care. And the payers really told them like, Hey, we'd love for you guys to have a better continuum in this market. You refer these patients out that need residential services and they bounce around the system and that's not good for the patient. So they made the decision, I think in early 21 to start adding detox and res in their core market. So the whole idea is to be vertically integrated and have a lot of depth in their markets versus just being in kind of one of those segments. And I do think you're going to see other companies do that on a similar basis, especially when they have density in a good market. Yeah. So it seems like now the continuum is going to be some sort of detox capability, but with a long-term follow-up on something like IOP with maybe MAT combined with that. Is that right? Correct. You know, and so I think look at these as opposed to just a behavioral business, it's a platform, right? And I think hospitals look at themselves that way. They look at their community. What are the needs of the community? And in the behavioral world, there are lots of communities that don't have, I mean, it's it's amazing that if you think about folks that go to, uh, to treatment, they typically go away. They go to a different state and then they come home and do treatment. That's not really great. Better environment is to do treatment in your backyard, do the residential care, and then step down to PHP at the same facility. Maybe the same facility as IOP and you have a continuity there. But in this is one of the few sectors where you've seen people historically, and you look at kind of Orange County treatment centers, South Florida, a lot of people from different markets go to that treatment and come right back to the same environment that caused those issues to begin with. So it takes time to build that continuum out, but we are seeing it in lots of different states. You have someone going through an intervention or dealing with a psychiatrist and the patient is in trouble. You want to have local options that can really serve them. And for the longest time that I've been in banking, that's not been the case. No, that's right. I mean, they wanted the one of the dings on kind of the the classic residential treatment was you're essentially going to a luxury spa, but, but then at the end of it, you're returning right back into the, the life that you had before you went. So you're going to break bad habits. You got to do it in the normal every day. Yeah. I was with a client yesterday and he's a psychiatrist and, and he talks about behavioral health, mental health. He uses the term a brain illness. So if you know folks who've had you know an addiction issue, an opioid issue, a lot of times it's a chemical imbalance in their brain. They can't help. And that's chronic. And that's no different than someone who's diabetic. But the system has treated it like it's episodic. And that's a mistake. So I do think if you talk to clinicians, they would tell you, look, it's better to have a full continuum and, and touch the patient for longer, even if you're doing it on an outpatient basis, because you're going to be able to ensure more touch points, more support, more community. And that those type of patients need that type of support. Well, that's right. Let's go back to supply. Obviously, as this continues to evolve, you know, this is a space where there's a much more keen behavioral, you know, straight up behavioral tie-in particularly in the, in the IOP universe. Is there a big gap between supplier providers and are people investing to close it? Well, you've got a couple issues, right? You got the mid-levels and then you have the doctors. And so I think you, you all would know psychiatrists in this country in 97, there were 48,000 psychiatrists. And in 2018, there were 28,000 and it's declining pretty rapidly. I think two thirds of psychiatrists are over 55 years old. So huge, huge issue on that front. And then on the mid-level front, or 
for non-doctor front, you've got, if you're familiar with social workers, I mean, they are trained that money is bad. It's you know, really taking care of people. That goes back, you know, 60 years. So a lot of social workers and folks like that, they're not in the business for money. They're in the business to take care of people. So culture, mission are really, really important things. In these companies, you're not making widgets and you're helping people. So I think having a culture that is consistent with what your clinicians think, it's not all money driven, what happened in 15 and 16, it's not all pay driven on all you know lab testing. And so your employees see that. And so I think you've got the acute part of a psychiatrist shortage. Hopefully the medical schools can be fed up. It takes time to do that. But I think the other part is this is one of the industries out the other parallel I would draw would be uh, the hospice industry. A lot of people in that industry and the addiction industry are there to really help people who are hurting. And so it's a very mission driven sector. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that. But I think as long as you keep that and you're taking care of the patient first and you're doing what's right, that the employees will follow. How are we looking at coverage geographically? Am I fair to say that some of your coastal areas are adequately served or, or maybe even in some cases overserved? But when you look at across the country, geographically, where do you see pockets of adequacy versus inadequacy? There's still a little bit of the travel on the addiction side, on the detox and arrest side. I had someone in my family go through this, so it kind of hit home. And all the people we worked with on the intervention and everything, every place they suggested was Florida or Texas. There was no place here they suggested. So that was a little frustrating, but we do see new facilities getting built. Texas has been an area we've seen a lot of new building. You do run into, as you guys know, different permitting issues, the NIMBY stuff. I don't know if you, you want it in your backyard, but a lot of Americans don't want a treatment center in driving distance from their house. And so, but we are very, very underbedded from a residential standpoint. We are certainly, and it's getting better, we are certainly underbedded from the res guys who take uh, in-network insurance. You still have a, a bunch of the coastal guys that you mentioned that are you know out of network or higher in cash pay. But I do think it's getting better. We have a client that's almost all commercial and they have a little bit of Medicaid in the state they're in, but they've got everything from they have psych facilities, they have really big residential treatment centers, they have MAT across the board. And it's I would say it's 100 percent in contract. But we are still a little behind the eight ball from the number of beds we do need. Let's jump jump back to uh to reimbursement. I know we've been talking about coverage a lot. You mentioned something that, you know, was kind of keen in all of our diligence back in the in the mid 2010s. And that was just particularly on the residential side, or you had a lot of uh, providers that were kind of exposed on the, the tox screening front. We'd see assets that were getting, you know, 50 plus percent of their revenue from screening, which is kind of ripe for a fall. And then you mentioned, obviously, some people fell out of the industry as you had the back half of that decade. But fast forward to now, it seems like a lot of the the kind of testing and, and screening environment, there's a it's reached some level of stability where even, you know, there's obviously a certain sustaining volume that that's even necessary. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. We've seen everything from bundles where the providers are testing where it's appropriately, but there's no additional uh, fee for service on the testing, which I like. We've seen providers on the front end tell us, hey, we outsource that to Quest or LabCorp, you know, we, we, we call it in when it's necessary, but we don't, we don't want that revenue. You know, it, it was just a perverse incentive and not everyone was doing it that way, but you know, the payers kind of assumed when they saw some pretty bad actors, Hey gosh, everyone's doing it that way. But I definitely think it's a component of treatment. It should not be, as you pointed out, 50% or the driver, but people have learned when we talk to buyers and private equity firms, even the associates of those firms, it's one of the first questions they ask, what's lab revenue? And the second question they ask is, is this in or out of network? And so ultimately, 
what we're all trying to do is get to a sustainable rate for treatment, whether that's Medicaid, in-network insurance or whatever, that's where investors are getting to. And I do think that providers are there. I mean, every provider we're working with today is 100% in-network. And so they're trying to take care of the patients. They're trying to be partners with the payers. And I think that's the best place to be. Yeah, I would agree. Well, let's move on to what's always the most important part of this. And that thoughts on investing in the space. What do you think makes for an attractive asset or company? So I would say full continuum of care. That's detox through, and some people stop at IOP. I would go all the way through outpatient because once you're done with IOP, you, you still want to have you know, frequent outpatient visits, you know, mental health visits, because, you know, once someone gets chemicals, alcohol, whatever out of their system, there's still an ongoing behavioral need. So I think that's a little bit of a change that you may hear. And then in-network, really working with the payers. We are clients that have done that have typically been led to water by the payers. Hey, here's, we really love you to build up this market. Here's the services we need. I mean, the, the payers are identifying service lines, geographies where they need providers or where they don't have them. And we've seen that in Washington State, California, Illinois, Texas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Florida. We've seen that across the board. And so I think the, the other thing I would mention here is it's one of the few sectors within healthcare where the payers are increasing rates the commercial payers. You don't have a lot of Medicare in this sector, but we've seen the VA, we've seen commercial payers across the country, in some cases, increase rates 20, 30%. And so that is a rarity in today's world when everyone else is complaining about their cut they received or the lack of the very small increase given the staffing cost changes. So it does seem to me, it's tacit acknowledgement that the payers realize, and a lot of states and communities realize, this has been underfunded for probably 40 years. And so if you look at things like TMS or some of the really interesting ketamine programs that are happening, they're really keeping people out of acute care, keeping them out of hospitals, keeping them out of ERs. And that's what we all want. The system before was set up to just treat the really sick, to treat folks in detox, to treat folks in res. And then unfortunately, the recidivism rate was really high because we weren't doing the lower levels of care well. And the other thing I would tell you is, as far as a platform, what's attractive. Those businesses like this that have full continuum that are growing fast, that may be one state, super regional, are still trading for really, really, really attractive prices. So when I say attractive, processes we've run, talking to investors we know, yeah, they love this, they love behavioral. This is a su the subset of the market, but they're bidding 12, 13 times in some cases and not making the second round. And the other thing I would say, it's not financial engineering. These are, these are businesses that are growing 20, 25, 30% organically, which makes those prices look good. So it's one of the bright spots in the M&A world when there's a lot of distress in other segments. Yeah, and certainly, certainly a, a demand side that's topic of conversation frequently. Any other any other factors that people are, are looking at the space that's kind of top of mind they need to consider? You know, another, another thing we haven't talked about is folks got into trouble in 15 and 16 too on relying on 100% internet marketing. That's still SEO is still a component of the marketing we see with our clients, but our clients are really working with local health systems, other physicians, other referring physicians, other programs. And so that's one thing that we've seen de-risk the model a little bit. When you look at the referral patterns that a lot of these good groups have, they've got really diverse referrals. Sometimes we, we did a deal in Washington state and the largest referral I think was 5% of referrals versus, you know, seven, eight years ago, you know, Google would have been 80, 90% of the referrals, which can turn on a dime. So it gets back to really being deep 
local relationships in your communities with the referral sources, patients, and, and the payers. And I think that's a really, really defensible moat for businesses like this. So it creates a lot of value. Well, thank you so much. That was an excellent overview. As usual, there's way more to talk about than we have time on a short podcast, but always great to catch up. Thank you for your thoughts. And we'll all be continuing to talk about this throughout the year. Thanks everybody for listening. As you know, we're focused on behavioral for the next few episodes. And on our next episode, we'll be back with LA again, talking about just general psychiatry and other elements of the behavioral continuum. And we're looking forward to that. That'll be very exciting. Thanks all. Have a great day. And we will talk again soon. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.